Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Wa Wonders Why, a companion podcast to Smart Enough to Know Better. And this episode is titled, What the Philosophy? Where I get to go on a deep dive with philosopher and ethicist Kevin Lowe about all the things I've been thinking about with philosophy recently. It's really useful to have a philosopher who you can just call up on a moment's notice and get him to answer questions for you. So you should all get one immediately. Welcome back to the podcast, our teacher of ethics, Kevin Lowe. A great pleasure to be here, Greg. Uh, now, Kevin, we have many, many heavy things to discuss today. Anytime I need to talk about philosophy, I don't just go to the internet and read bad websites. I turn to you. You are my rock, my philosophy rock. It's an important role to be a philosopher who helps out scientists with the things that are just a bit too heavy for their little scientist brains. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Oh, oh no. no, if you want to come out swinging, you come out swinging. I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine. Now, the most important question, before we start everything else that's super important, let's get the most important question out of the way. Recently, on the TV show The Good Place, mm. the ethicist Chidi Anagonye took his shirt off and he was, he was ripped. He turns out that this mild-mannered, nebbish, ethicist, lecturer, philosopher, he was actually jacked. Like fully, mm. fully jacked. Kevin, are you fully jacked? I would not say that I'm in Cheedy's league when it comes to fully jacked. I mean, those guys, pecs, each of them individually could be a professor. I mean, <laughs> they are massive pecs. Uh, I don't think uh, even the female members of staff don't have pecs that size, uh, in my experience. Uh, of philosophers. Uh, the fact is, he's an actor. He's not really a philosopher. No, don't, uh, don't ruin this for me. No, don't do this to me. It's his job to look good, and he looks really, really good with his shirt off. But I've <laughs> not yet met a philosopher that jacked, but philosophically, I'm convinced it is logically possible that there could be a philosopher that jacked. I don't think it's contradictory. I think it could be done. I'm glad that, that now, finally, philosophers have Chidi Anagonye to feel bad about because physicists had to deal with Keanu Reeves in, in the movie Chain Reaction, where he was like a sexy Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist. And we, who can mm. compete with Keanu Reeves? I mean, really, come on. Uh, you have to be like Idris Elba, and that's about it. There's no one else on this planet who can deal with him. So I'm glad that you're suffering too now. Mm. He's also his indecisiveness gag is you know, accurate to an extent because you find a moral philosopher and the moral philosopher will quite happily argue both sides of every topic till everything is brought to a complete standstill. But it's sort of annoying. It's like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory. Mm. I mean, there are some physicists who are a bit like that, mm -hmm. but you don't want to put up with Sheldon gags every time you admit you've got a physics degree. Uh, so <laughs> we all have our cross to bear. Uh, if Chidi is our cross to bear, there could be much worse crosses to bear. Problem is we don't have that many roles models in the media. In the media, there are good cops and bad cops and smart cops and stupid cops and corrupt cops and honest cops and this whole spectrum of cops. But physicists and philosophers, we get very limited representation. We're a bit like the gay community that way, uh, that you know, the gay community get really excited when there's one gay character and they're all outraged when the one gay character gets run over by a steamroller mm. because that's what happens to minor characters and the gay character is always a minor character. Uh, to me, like, 
Chidi, he's our philosopher, and now it's really important to me to see him represented properly. Go, no, that is not how philosophers are, because he's the only one we've got. I love the fact that the philosopher's only fictional philosopher, or TV philosopher, positive and negative about him, like a true philosopher. Well done. When I invite someone onto the podcast, I always like to destroy them utterly. I think it's very important to to knock them down to a to a pulp, like punch them into small bits. So really, that's why I invited you. I've I've, I've invited you on to talk about things, but I'm going to trick you now. I'm going to talk oh. about seriously, Kevin. Philosophy. I mean, really. I mean, really. It's 2018, <laughs> dude. Aristotle's been dead for a long time. Plato, Socrates. It's it's not a it's not a thing. I mean, it's okay. Look, no one's listening. No one's listening. <laughs> it's it's a it's a scam, isn't it? Like it's just a big scam. You guys are just you know you're just scamming us all, aren't you? It's like you can tell me. Oh, okay. Being honest here, I think philosophy is a discipline that's got some problems. Oh, <laughs> there's an old there's an old joke that the maths department is cheap to run because all they need is a pad of paper, a pencil, and a rubbish bin, and they can do research. Mm. And the joke is, philosophers say, "Ah, oh, we're even cheaper because we don't need a rubbish bin." There's an element <laughs> of truth to that that uh, we are still teaching Aristotle and Plato two thousand years later, mm. and. Now, our justification of that, and I don't think it's a bad justification, is we're teaching the history of philosophy. We're not trying to teach the answers. Now, in science, you can skip to the end and say, I don't care what Isaac Newton thought. Just tell me the truth. Mm. Tell me the modern understanding of planetary motion and forget all the other stuff. Um, But in philosophy, the way we teach it is we'll teach you Plato and then Aristotle and then the more modern thinkers so you understand the history of how these ideas have evolved, not just skipping to the end. Hmm. And I think that's because we think that for many of them, there is no one true answer. You can't skip to the end of how do we live a good life and get the <laughs> right answer. What, All we can say what? is... Why not? Why is this, damn it, well, this is the talking about. Yet. Uh, but we can say, you know, the Greeks had these ideas that seemed very weird to us about how to live a good life. Hmm. And Immanuel Kant had these ideas that seemed very weird to us about how to give it life and so on and so on. And now we've got our modern ideas, which are, of course, perfect in every way and cannot be improved upon. <laughs> no, that, that's really unlikely. If we are the generation who has nothing more to learn about ethics, you think people in the year 2500 are going to look back at 2018 as the year they nailed it and when they were morally <laughs> right about everything. You're crazy. Mm. Uh, people are going to look back at us and we don't know what they're going to hate about us. Maybe they'll hate what we're doing to people on Nauru. Maybe they'll hate the way we're burning fossil fuels, maybe they'll hate the Melbourne Cup and the way horses are treated, but more likely it's going to be things that I haven't thought of because I'm not from the year 2500 Mm. and I can't escape my moral milieu uh, far enough to see what we're doing now that's going to be seen as morally horrible in the future. I mean, we only, what, 30 years ago in Australia criminalised raping your spouse? Mm -hmm. So, you know, jump forward to 2048, probably someone in 2048 is going to look back at something we're accepting right now and think it's as bad as mm. raping the person who you're supposed to love more than anyone else on earth and protect. Uh, we just don't know what it is. Uh, we've got to try and figure that out. But, yeah, getting back to the problem uh, with philosophy, some philosophers, and I'm not saying they're right, they're two sides to a story, have argued that some of the continental philosophers, the post-structuralists and the post-modernists aren't creating anything useful. They're not Mm. pushing forward human knowledge in any meaningful way, but they've managed to capture the organizations by which research funding is allocated. (laughs) Uh, 
the phenomenologists just say, I am an expert on phenomenology, and no one who is not an expert like me could possibly be in charge of divvying out the money. Give us a big pile of government money, we'll divvy it out to our students and our acolytes and our flunkies, and mm. we'll keep producing this stuff. Maybe they're doing something really important that outsiders can't understand, but mm. – to many people, many reputable philosophers, it looks like total drivel. But there's no – in science, if you're publishing total drivel, I can, in theory, get some funding, go to my lab, fail to replicate your results, publish that failure to replicate, and then in science, everyone will go, ah, yeah. you're busted, sunshine. Whereas if I publish a thing saying the square root of negative one is a metaphor for the penis, <laughs> you can't disprove that. <laughs> Yes, I hope not. I don't think so. No, I can't. I'll, I'll say no. I'll just, I'll, I'll just pretend I know. I'll do what I do with philosophy a lot of time. I'll just nod knowingly and back away and mm. just smile. Uh, but in defence of philosophy, I mean, one cheeky answer is you can't get away from it. If I challenge you to defend why we should do science, mm. you can't defend the idea of why we should do science without engaging in some philosophy. Uh, well, this is we'll, we'll jump backwards. I just want to give a bit of context to this. I think we've just we've we've absolutely jumped in two feet into this. So I, I'm going to try and give my layman's version of this. Like back in the day, if you were if you had some money or you had time, you were a hermit or you were a little bit crazy, you could sit around and talk about things and think about stuff. You didn't have to you know dig holes in the ground or crop plants, crop plants, plant plants. And plant crops, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm such a city boy. Or herd animals or whatever. And so, and they were called philosophers. And they sort of, they were the thinkers, the great thinkers of our time, of that time anyway. And then in my mind, though, sort of religion sort of grew out of that tree. And it's not my ideas, by the way. I've read this in other places. You had like the tree of philosophy, and then it branches into, on one side, religion, and then a bit later, science. And these grew out of the central tenet of thinking about ethics and about the world around you, which, which is philosophy. But I put forward that the moment that science came into existence, and I mean, just from once again, a bit of background again, William Wheel coined the term scientist in 1833 for a female scientist by, by the name of Mary Somerville, who he called her a scientist, not because he was looking for a gender-free term for science, a, per a person who does science or a man who does science. He wanted to, uh, he, he meant it as a, a polymath, a person who could do physics and chemistry and geology. My, I put forward that when natural philosophers turned into scientists, then really that was the useful side of things. And the other side was a almost like a withered branch. It was no longer useful to us anymore. I think there's an element of truth in that, that if we want to understand how the universe is and how the universe works, philosophical metaphysics hasn't been a very productive way of doing that, whereas physics has been an enormously productive way of doing that. Metaphysics never gave us Blu-ray players or <laughs> put a person on the moon, mm. uh, whereas physics did do mm. those things. So if you want to answer a question like, why are there stars in the sky? Then I think as soon as we invented astronomy, then the whole business of sitting in your armchair trying to figure it out from first principles did get revealed as a fruitless branch. Mm. But if you're talking about something like ethics, my area, and mm. I may be biased here, or perhaps I chose ethics because it was an area that isn't rendered obsolete by science. <laughs> uh, as, I, as I think I've said before on your podcast, in fact, there's no atom of evil. There's no mm. way to objectively, scientifically measure that 
sexually assaulting your spouse is morally wrong. Now, you could, in theory, uh, decide that certain facts about the world are morally wrong. You could say uh, causing this change in someone's neurotransmitters is morally wrong or stimulating these nerve cells in a way that causes a pain sensation mm. is morally wrong. Uh, but you have to do philosophy to do that. And only once you've made that philosophical leap into saying this uh, physical phenomenon is morally wrong, then you can measure that physical phenomenon and thus by proxy measure moral wrongness mm. but you have to do philosophy to get off the ground to establish your starting point of what you consider to be morally right and morally wrong mm. i think it's a very interesting point because back in the day was looking back at the branches on the tree religion was the other branch and supposedly religion was the only way to have a moral stance because it was it was god's will so you didn't have to worry about it that was all dealt with so the philosophy tree had turned into the moral side religion and the um phenomenological side of, of science of working stuff out now that was great when that was considered a thing but i am an atheist i i don't believe in gods i try and be a person who runs by evidence as much as i can be so I don't believe in, in this stuff. So therefore, I've been told I don't have a moral standpoint because it's all, you know, has to be based on religion. And I disagree with that. So I've had to, in my case, go down to utilitarianism. That's where I've come. That's where I've planted my flag and said, I try and set up systems and live a life that does the maximum good for the maximum number of people. Knowing full well, that's very difficult. Is there anything else we could be building off that? I mean, is it is it do, do we still need people sitting around talking about utilitarianism? Well, jumping back because you've got this story you're telling where philosophy split off into the moral side being religion and the non-moral side being science. Mm. And I would say no, that's just historically wrong. The okay. uh, the third branch of secular ethics has been there from the very beginning. Part of what Socrates got in trouble for was running around to people saying, you know. If doing good is just doing whatever the gods say, then if the gods say to torture people, that's good and that's weird. But if there is some higher standard of good and evil by which we can judge the gods, then what do we need gods for? We can just oh. look to good and evil. And you know, this is a philosophical problem for theism that secular more philosophers have been beating Thais over the head with for 2,000 years, and it doesn't appear to have sunk in, uh, but the core idea has always been there, that there have always been philosophers who didn't think belief in supernatural beings was a good basis uh, for morality. In fact, would say that it's provably bad, because if the only good thing is doing whatever God says, then goodness almost becomes meaningless. It's just doing whatever God says. Mm, mm. You know, the binding of Isaac, the story about how Isaac, who was a really righteous guy because he was willing to carry out a human sacrifice of his own child to please God. Mm. Uh, from an atheistic perspective, that's not a good person. Mm. Uh, that's a mm. lunatic or a bad person. And God was only testing him. But that's still not cool. That's not mm. a cool way of testing. So uh, if you can judge God by any external moral standard, you don't need God anymore. And if you can't judge God by any external moral standard, then is that really even good? So I, d I just want to bring in that third branch of non-theistic moral philosophy and say that's been there all along. That didn't appear out of whole cloth sometime in the 1900s or appear with Jeremy Bentham in the 1800s. Uh, that's always been there. Um, okay. And the second right. thing, what else can we do besides utilitarianism? Well, one thing we can do is refine utilitarianism. You know, the first utilitarian philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, said, what is good is pleasure and what is bad is pain. 
Mm-hmm. And so philosophers who always love to cause trouble said, okay, so <laughs> therefore, you know, the best possible life could be sitting at home, playing video games, masturbating, shooting up heroin, and eating hamburgers, mm. because that maximizes your pleasure. Mm-hmm. And if we could give everyone in the world that lifestyle, that would be the best possible world, a whole world of junkies shooting up drugs and playing video games and being maximally happy. Mm-hmm. So people said, you know, actually, maybe we should use a different unit to measure uh, happiness. And so Mill, John Stuart Mill, said, I think we should have higher pleasures like opera and philosophy and <laughs> lower pleasures like shooting up heroin and playing mm. video games and masturbating. And we should try and maximize the higher pleasures. Mm. And, you know, that gets us to a different world. If we follow that philosophy, we'd end up with a world full of opera theaters and philosophy textbooks as opposed to you know, lower pleasures like Marvel movies and masturbation. Uh, so <laughs> one area of philosophy is about uh, what is utility? What mm. is it you're trying to maximize when you, Greg, say, I want to bring about the best possible world? Are you maximizing orgasms? Are you maximizing operas? Yet a third way of doing it to get around the problem of masochists who want to be beaten or suicidal people who would like to be shot uh, is you can say, okay, what we'll do is we'll make utility the things you would want to have happen if you were fully informed and rational. Mm. Whatever and, that means, yeah. Uh, whatever that means. But then, I mean, that seems like pretty good in a sense because it means that we can reason our way to supporting someone who wants to run a marathon because running a marathon is really painful. Mm. So in, if you were a hedonistic utilitarian, a Bentham-style one who just wants to maximize pleasure, you should be crash-tackling people at the starting line of marathons saying, don't do it to yourself. <laughs> and injecting, injecting heroin into their feet to just go quickly. <laughs> Exactly. Chill out and have some drugs. Uh, But we don't want to do that. That seems wrong and weird. So Mm. if we can say, well, we should fulfill this person's preference. Their preference is to run a marathon. So we should encourage them and give them a sports drink and cheer them on and tell them they're wonderful after they do it. Unless it turns out marathons are bad. Now, I have no reason to believe marathons are bad for you. But American football, for example, that's bad for you. That causes long-term brain damage. Boxing uh, is bad for you. Uh, So if we get someone who says, I want to be a boxer, I want to get into the ring, uh, then maybe you should – say to them, well, look, if you were fully informed and rational, you wouldn't want to get into the ring. You'd want to pursue a different sport with less risk of long-term brain damage. And so we'd maximize utility by trying to encourage them to go into MMA, where they use lighter gloves and they (laughs) choke each other more so than they... Not so that. It's, I'm not saying it's good, but it's an improvement, uh, all else being equal. If you punch 100 people unconscious with boxing gloves mm. or choke 100 people unconscious with your arms, the people who are punched out will suffer more long-term neurological damage than the ones who were choked. So mm. all else being equal, if we're maximizing utility, uh, we should maximize the number of blood chokes compared to you know, <laughs> ruthless beatings with boxing gloves that leave someone in hospital semi-conscious. Hang on. This is, this is, my, this is my problem with... <laughs> With philosophy, we're getting. We're, you're doing the thing. You're doing the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call you out here on this. See, when, when, as, a, as a scientist, science communicator, uh, I say uh, we were going to go look for X. We did experiments for X, and uh, and then we found X, or we found Y. Sometimes we find something totally different or nothing at all. Anti X, and and everyone goes, oh, good, excellent, and hopefully that has some point or some use. But philosophy, you have a habit of going. Well, I ask a question, Kevin. Can you please explain? X to me. And you go, ah, X. Here's X. But here's also the opposite of X, which is just as valid as X. And you're like, you haven't helped. You've just (laughs) handed it all to me and said, it could be infinitely anything at this point. Okay, well, two things are going on there. One is philosophy, and I'm giving away the secrets of the industry here. If you're not a philosopher, pretend I didn't say this. We aren't just trying to teach you philosophical things. We're trying to get you to think like a philosopher. 
because you bastards. Yeah, um, the best way to get good at thinking logically is to write a whole bunch of essays where you're forced to argue really difficult things using logic, and you know, do mathematical logic and engage with viewpoints that are different to yours, and have to argue using logic and reason whether you're right or they're wrong. That's how you get a better mind for this stuff. It's not like science where, in a sense, we can just teach you the answers and that's good enough. I mean, you could tell me what the speed of light is. And then if I ever need to know what the speed of light is, I know you've told me full stop. It's about 300,000 kilometres a second, give or take. Mm. Give or take. Uh, Whereas I don't just want to tell you what Socrates said. I want to give you the intellectual skills to engage with what Socrates said and see for yourself whether it's right or wrong. Uh, So we're... In the, we're in a sense like a gym teacher. We want you to do your exercise, hmm. and I'm forcing you to exercise. Uh, the other thing is that. Hang on, can I just? Are, can I just so I'm just going to jump in. I apologise. I'm just going to jump in because I, I just I want to bring up a point. Then, as a teacher as well, uh, yes, I just I just you know, oh, here's 300,000 kilometers a second speed of light. Gets great, and you've got to take my word for that, which is really bad science because you should never just touch, listen to some idiot on a podcast who tells you something. You should look it up or do the research. But if I was teaching you, I would we'd sit down and I would show you how we know it's. 300,000 kilometers a second, give or take. And and you'd be able to derive that yourself. But here's the issue. There's so much knowledge now in the world and really complicated knowledge, especially in the area of astrophysics. We just don't have time in a human lifespan to derive everything from first points uh, and build your knowledge from zero as if you organized it yourself and worked it out yourself. We have to give you the cliff notes so that you can start building more impressive things later on if you become an astrophysicist uh, you know, as a job. Is astrophysics just much more complicated, to just to use this as a com- than philosophy? Because in philosophy, it sounds like you can learn it. Or am I just being too reductionist there? Well, you could, in theory, or it would take a lot of time, but maybe you could learn everything everyone has ever said about moral philosophy. You could memorise all of those books. Hmm. But unless you had the analytic skills to go with that, uh, you would just have a bunch of opinions. You wouldn't be able to sort out in your mind which were the good or bad arguments and which were the good or bad opinions. So you become Chidi Anagonye at that point. You can't, you can't think for yourself. Yeah, but also I would say one critical difference between moral philosophy and astrophysics is that you're probably never going to be put in a position in your whole life where you have to reason out an astrophysics problem from first principles for yourself or bad things will happen. Depends if I ever get picked up by Doctor Who and get to travel mm. on the TARDIS, because I am ready for that. Just just saying, because I'm sure the Doctor will turn around and go, Greg, we have to derive the speed of light immediately, otherwise it's all... And I'll go, we got it, Doctor, we, we're doing this, and I'll be fine. Uh, mm. I, 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 have to, I have to live with this in my mind. I, hope, I, I need this, Kevin. Don't take this mm. from me. <laughs> uh, but in more, you're probably going to encounter some point in your life where you have a difficult moral decision to make, and you're going to have to figure it out yourself, mm. and you're going to have to have enough faith in your own ability to do that, to analyse the situation, form a plan of action, and carry out that plan. And there probably won't be an, or there might not be an ethicist there to help you at the time. Although we live in a blessed age where often you can pick up the phone and call an ethicist and get an expert opinion, which is rather wonderful. No one ever calls me, but 
In Sydney, they could. What am I? What am I? Chopped liver? What? <laughs> what? I, I, I see. Urgency. You're not calling me saying, Kevin, Kevin, there's a dying man on my floor and he's got do not resuscitate tattooed on his chest. <laughs> but he's got a note in his hand uh, from his wife saying that she wants him to live. What do I do? Mm. Uh, you just call me up to talk. There's no emergency. There's no time pressure. <laughs> so we need a ticking clock at all times. Okay, I'll keep that in mind for next time. Have a real moral problem. You know, pick up the phone. We philosophers are here to help. That's <laughs> it feel special. I mean, that would be my Doctor Who moment equivalent. You know, mm. if one day an astrophysicist picks up the phone and says, Kevin, there's a critical moral problem in astrophysics and only you can save the day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can, I can hear how excited you are already. All and right. And has landed and it might be here to destroy the Earth and I could kill it right now. What would Doctor <laughs> Who do? <laughs> well, well chat to it always chat to yeah. it always chat to the aliens all right like i've decided kevin after chatting to you for a couple of minutes here i've decided to let philosophy departments stand i'm not going to end philosophy yet okay so you've 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 cha- you've brought me around to your side that much uh, and there's also the philosophy of science, which I think you know, if science is worthwhile, then it's a pretty good argument that the philosophy of science must also be worthwhile because it in some sense serves to underpin science. If someone says, why is science better than pseudoscience? Mm. Then you could say, because science says it's better than pseudoscience. But that's circular. You have to go outside. You have to break the circle somehow and go to the philosophy of science and say, well, here is the philosophy of science and it can explain to you why science is better than pseudoscience. Surely it's because it actually produces things that – that can be replicated isn't it that easy isn't it the fact you go well science is allowed to increase your lifespan and be able to download pictures of cats on your phone and you know things of of that ilk very important things um that's why science is useful is there no more no more uh philosophy required than that where pseudoscience doesn't actually give any real benefits it just makes people think there's real benefits well, the pseudoscientists would disagree with that, and they would say crystal healing does have real benefits. It cured my dog's arthritis, and homeopathy does have real benefits. And they have what seems to them to be evidence for their beliefs in just the way that you have what seems to you to be evidence for your astrophysics beliefs. And I think you could say, ah, but science says they've got the wrong kind of evidence or they're reasoning the wrong way. But that too seems to me to be circular. I think you have to, in some sense, go outside science to the philosophy of science to explain why their evidence for homeopathy and their belief that it has achieved results isn't as good as your belief that science has achieved results. Hmm, okay. I, I always get very caught up on the word belief. I, I always that always makes me feel a bit weird because I don't think it what I do is a belief. I don't have to believe anything because worked out by many people who then show their workings to other people. And as you said, if it's wrong, it's going to get found out pretty fast. So, well, in uh, philosophy, without going too much into this area, because there is depth here, and I could go on about it for some time, but it's probably not germane, and we probably bore people who aren't philosophers. Philosophers have often in the past defined knowledge as justified true belief. I think what's going on there is you think your beliefs in astrophysics are not just beliefs, they're justified true beliefs, whereas someone else's belief in homeopathy is an unjustified untrue belief. But there we get into the question of what is justification, because Mm. they think their beliefs are justified. So we have to have a discussion about what should count as justification 
for a belief mm. uh, and indeed potentially about truth. The problem with truth is in some sense we never really know for certain the truth about anything. We can have increasingly high degrees of confidence. Mm -hmm. I have a very high degree of confidence Superman is not real. Mm -hmm. I have a very high degree of confidence he's made up. But if a dude in a blue and red suit just flew in through my window, heat visioned my books and <laughs> his Tower of Solitude in the North Pole, then I think, okay, uh, you are either Superman or you are a being that I cannot distinguish from Superman, so I've got to revise my certainty mm. that Superman is not real in the light of this new evidence. Mm. Uh, so do black holes exist? Well, maybe uh, you have a justified belief that they do, and maybe that belief is true, but it could turn out it's just something else that looked like a black hole all along. That, that is true, and that's, uh, that falls very much into learning about Karl Popper and falsification and the idea that actually you can't, prove anything really you can only say up to this point this is true so you know swans for example like they always thought swans were white and then in perth they discovered where i live they discovered black swans but we didn't know that black swans existed until we found them you don't even know to ask the questions you just suddenly you might discover something that you go oh wait the sun's not a giant ball of plasma it's actually a glowing space child or whatever we just didn't know that until it turned around and smiled at us or something weird like that uh, or our sun is a great big ball of plasma but alpha centauri is a giant space child mm. let's move on to the next question the next point of it not question the next part i want to talk about something really important uh, that's that's been in my uh mind for a while i want to talk to a philosopher about it a bit of science and it's something called the backfire effect mm. and for our listeners the backfire effect was a, some studies done in 2010 that stated that if you tell someone that their beliefs are wrong, that they will become more entrenched in their belief, that, that helping them, for giving them facts about why they're wrong will actually make them more entrenched in what they believe, the wrong thing. And this feels right because we all know that person who who believes in a political party that you don't like, and then you point out why they're wrong with facts and inverted commas, and and they they, they stand by their guns, damn it, and they you know you argue with them on the internet and they don't change their minds. And you go, well, that's the backfire effect. The backfire effect is real, and it's a real thing, and there's no point arguing. We live in a post-fact society, I keep getting told. Uh, but, Kevin, it seems like this is not true. The backfire effect is not real. Well, if we're being sciencey and just saying what has the evidence shown, people haven't been able to replicate the backfire effect mm. when they've tested it. Yes. And this is a real problem with psychology. Psychology has what they call a replication crisis, which is a polite way of saying it may well be the case that most of the major results that we learn about in Psych 101 are rubbish or are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Wow, and, yes. Yeah, uh, it a lot of the most famous psychological results that we learn about in Intro to Psych uh, just aren't replicatable. Uh, so it seems that in some sense, psychology as a discipline has to go back to its basics and go over a lot of the experimental results that it took for granted as being right. But in this, this one particular case, the backfire effect, people haven't been able to replicate it. So and in one sense, whew, yes, and in yes. another sense, science has solved it. We don't need to talk about it anymore. It hasn't been replicated. Therefore, we can forget about it. Mm. Uh, but I think you're right that it appears to explain something we've all encountered. You know, the zealot who just gets more riled up the more facts against them 
pile up. And you know, I don't want to talk about American politics too much, um, but certainly seems to be something like that going on there that the extremists on either side bulletproof against facts. You bring up mm. facts that fit in their worldview and they just get even more entrenched in what they're doing. So I think it would be simplistic to completely dismiss it, but it's certainly not a truth about the human condition that we respond against facts by believing the opposite. Yes. I think uh, the articles I've been reading says there's, there's no um, backfire effect, but there is a pushback. The stronger you believe something, the more you uh, put your identity into an idea, of course, the less you want someone to destroy your identity. So you will push back against someone going against you. You will actually slowly come round to that way of thinking, if, even just in your own in your own mind, by showing more facts. I think it's super important people to hear this because people are, oh, there's no point. There's no point talking to that person. There's no point saying it. But there is a point in saying it. There's no, maybe there's no point in yelling and screaming and having a fight on the internet. But if it's someone that you have an emotional connection to, it seems to be that they will listen to their own tribe. So if you're in their tribe, maybe you're not in their political tribe, but you're in their literal tribe uh, <laughs> or their family or their church group or you know, you're, maybe you go hiking together, talking to someone who is a, different to you but has some similarities does seem to change their mind. But it means being civil, I think, and not being, uh, I guess, argumentative about it, which can get very difficult. Mm, and while I'm picking on science and scientism a little bit, isn't it interesting <laughs> that because they published this backfire effect in a journal and supposedly they had gained the information to bring it up scientifically, people believed it, mm -hmm. even though, A, it was false, and B, it's a pretty weird idea if you think about it. I mean, how could a species evolve that, you know, confronted with evidence that there were no more antelope, decided this means there are antelope, or confronted <laughs> with evidence that the plum season was over, said, no, I'm now more convinced than ever there are plums on those trees, and I'm going to keep looking until I find them. Now, how could a creature like that evolve or live? It, yeah, but, it, but people believed it because it, this information came from the science tribe, and a science tribe says backfire effect. And lots yeah. of people said, "Oh, if the science tribe says it, this must be true. I'll incorporate it into my view of the world as a new, justified, true belief." Mm -hmm. There's all. I mean, now I'm going to get very dangerous here. I'm, I'm, so I'm stepping carefully. I'm being as nice as I can. I think that there are soft sciences and there are hard sciences uh, somewhere on the spectrum, and I, I, that's awful. But I oh, can I maybe soften that to say that there are easy sciences and difficult sciences, and you know, <laughs> studying. Atomic hydrogen. That's pretty simple. Uh, mm. I mean, there's yep. fascinating depth to it, but hydrogen's going to do what hydrogen's going to do. And a hydrogen atom is a <laughs> hydrogen atom. But people, they're really complicated. Yep. And when you're trying to <laughs> learn the truth of how this astoundingly complicated piece of DNA and protein works by getting it to fill out a questionnaire uh, or make it do a quiz on a computer, that's really hard. You, you're very good. You've done that's beautiful. I love. I'm going to take that. I'm going to use that from here because I'm always trying to find a way. It doesn't sound insulting because I don't mean easy. Yeah, soft and hard. Um, my my issue is in all these sciences is any kind of science that requires you to self-report or mm. uh, uh, or yeah, self-reporting or um, by t uh, polls. Uh, yes, it's it's a type of evidence, but it is the weakest form of evidence. And you have to be very careful about the results you extrapolate from those evidence. If someone says, I think that I believe X or that I felt this at this time, if it's just what they think, humans have been shown to not know their own minds. We just don't know what we're thinking. We think we think 
what we're thinking, but we actually don't know we think what we're thinking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mm. And we seem to have different kinds of belief that if you ask a committed Christian, do you believe that your granny went to heaven when she died? They may well very sincerely say, yes, I believe that. But were they happy when their grandma died? Even though you know, it's kind of mm. her going off on the best package cruise to a holiday ever for yes. infinity time. No, they're not happy. So they have these beliefs, but these beliefs aren't necessarily action determining or emotion determining. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean, think that means they're lying about their belief. Just that humans are complicated mm. and we can believe A in some meaningful sense, yet not act as if we believe A or emotionally react as if we believe A. I just realized you could do a really cool TV series about a serial killer. Stay with me on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So <laughs> you could do like a, a person who is crazy, but they're like, no, no, I believe in the literal truth of God. So I'm going to, and, and they're, they're ordained priest or something, some sort of powerful thing so they can actually get rid of people's sins. And they go up, they get rid of your sins, and then they kill you straight away. They kind of go, you're shriven of all your sins. And they stab you in the brainstem. So painlessly kill you, but you're instantly dead. And they go and kill everyone they find, send them to heaven, knowing full well they're going to heaven because they've given rid of all their sin. They're cleansed. And mm. then they, but they know they're a murderer. So that only one person will be in hell and that's them. But they'll do that for humanity because that's, that's the best thing to do. Well, so, that is the idea of the Catholic ritual of last rites, as I understand it, that you're about to die, you confess all your sins, you get absolved for all your sins, and that's the guaranteed straight mm. to heaven, and that's why they do that. So, yeah, no, that seems internally consistent with with the doctrine that you can either you know, confess your sins and be saved, or if you've got a sort of more utilitarian God kind of view, like the good place is conceit is that the good and the bad you do is what determines where you go in the afterlife, mm. so... Maybe this person could identify people who have done good so far, but they're about to do something <laughs> bad. You know, they've worked for charity for 20 years, but they're about to take a job in a law firm. And so, <laughs> cut them off before they can do any bad things and spoil their shot at the good place. I love it. I love it. So getting back to the, <laughs> getting back to the backfire effect, I, why I'm bringing it up to people, because I feel that a lot of time on social media and, and in media in general, there's a lot of yelling and screaming about what can be done and you know what can't be done and people freaking out and on the podcast we've always said we've always tried to say useful things and and not just say here is what could happen but here's what you can do how to action it yourself because i think it's more important to do that so i want people to take away from this that the backfire effect is not real that the pushback mm -hmm. effect seems to be real i mean as much as not real i know i know you know not it hasn't been replicated which i think is a good way of putting it and that you can change people's minds and it's not your job to change everyone's mind, but never give up if you think it's important to change someone's mind because it can actually happen. Mm. And, and you can bring them around to a type of thinking, hopefully, that will be better for everyone around you, including yourself. Oh, I've, I agree with that completely, and I've got a couple of other things to say. One is that uh, this gets us too, you know, we supposed enlightened, rational atheists, we do it too. If someone comes up to me with one of their philosophical arguments, the existence of God that I've heard a hundred times before, <laughs> uh, I get shirty with it. I go, oh, not this again. Mm. Uh, and you know, that's the backfire effect in some of And My atheism is reinforced by hearing this argument, which I consider to be a bad argument mm. again. And I think we all do this with arguments we think are bad and have heard before. The other one is that political beliefs, quite abstract, they're sort of, they're the P 
pinnacle of a mountain or you know, a framework of lots of discrete individual beliefs that all sort of pool together like streams forming a river, forming uh, an ocean, uh, where the conclusion is, I should vote Liberal or I should vote Labour. Mm. And uh, if I'm convinced that I should vote Labour, and then someone says, uh, Kevin, I've got evidence that the current head of the Labour Party was credibly abu- accused of a terrible crime. Well, that might not change my beliefs entirely rationally because I've got all of these subsidiary beliefs about unions and social justice and the environment and blah, 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 that all feed into this conclusion that I should vote Labour. And if you knock away one of those supports, all the rest are still there. And the same goes for people who vote Liberal or vote Green uh, or whatever. So if you are if you believe that everything about the Republican Party and George W. Bush was good, and this was the scenario they used in the original backfire effect experiment, mm-hmm. I believe, and then they show people evidence that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, no, they're not going to change their opinion about George W. Bush because their opinion wasn't solely based on this one thing about mm-hmm. WMDs. And even if you showed them cast iron proof there were no WMDs, all the other beliefs supporting that you know, high-level belief would remain intact. So if you want to change someone's belief about climate change or science or something like that, you're probably not going to be able to do it by going directly for the peak of the mountain because you have to get right down to the little individual low-level supporting beliefs Mm. and say, well, okay, this is time where you think your granny had a prophetic dream. Um, You say, let's examine that. Is it really do we really have enough evidence to think your granny did something supernatural? Say, oh, here's the time that homeopathy cured your dog's arthritis. Well, can we explain that through regression to the mean or the placebo effect or the experimental effect or the Hawthorne effect or any of these other confounding factors? And if you nibble away at those, maybe, hopefully, the dream is that you teach them the critical thinking skills they need to examine the other 100 for themselves. Yes, yeah. Get to the point where they ah, once I've learned how to think critically, all of these... all of these root beliefs wither, and then the belief at the top withers away too. You cunning bugger. I just saw what you just did then. You just tied in this part about pushback and backfire to our talk for if, is philosophy useful. You cunning swine. Well done. Well now played. You have to put them all together in one big podcast. You can't snip me up and pull me out. <laughs> you are well played, sir. Well played. And, this, and now I'm feeling annoyed. And so this leads to the third part of the podcast, which is. I, I want to put forward an idea, and I, it's not a t- fully original idea, but I, I, I've sort of been something that how I think humans work. And I'd just like to have a chat to the listener and, and you, of course, Kevin, about this. Every negative thing in our lives comes down to fear. I, I honestly think that we are an ape. Uh, we are, we are a, a, quite a complicated ape, but we are still an ape with a lot of our ape things still going on. And we hide behind... Uh, our thought processes and we hide behind rational thinking and say, well, it was very rational that I hit that person in the face because, you know, they were a Nazi or whatever. But really it comes down to you are putting a an intelligence layer, a, a frontal cortex layer of argument over a deep-seated animal reaction. And I think mm-hmm. that that reaction is fear. So mm-hmm. if, you're fr- and, uh, if you're frightened of something, I think you can be frightened, you can run away. You can, you literally just go, oh God, it's like, it's in my face. There's a bear. Ah, there's a bear. Get away, get away, get away. Or, or you can go, I am, as a bear, I get frightened. I'm going to kill that MFFing bear. And you leap forward and you fight it and you're angry. So anger comes from fear in my, my rationale here. And then if you then, let's say you survive the bear attack and you walk away and for the rest of your life, you're worried about the bear getting you. You're anxious because of the fear. So I've got fear, I've got anger and I've got anxiety 
which I think leads to every other problem. So if you meet someone else on the road, it's gonna, this is going to get very complicated. Mm. But if you meet, and then you're like, are you worried about the bears? And like, oh, bears. No, I'm not worried about bears. You're like, you idiots. You have to be worried about the bears. The bears are the only thing to worry about. And then now you hate them. <laughs> you're, you're annoyed mm. at them because they don't hate bears like you hate bears. In fact, they've got a bear friend who they have drinks with. And they're like, no, no, that bear's mother killed me or tried to rip my arm off. And so you're responding with hatred now to something as well. Okay, so, can I just put a pitch in yes. um, for another F word, uh, reproduction, uh, as another fundamental drive as well as fear? Because yeah, okay. uh, as I see it, though, even when you get down to fruit flies or single-celled beings, from the point of view of their genes, they've got two jobs. Don't get killed and reproduce. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're reproducing because we fear not reproducing. I uh, Yes, because I, I, yes, that in and of itself is a good to us. So, mm. so you've got this one drive model of everything is fear, and I'm just putting a pitch in here. Can we have fear and hot sex? Oh, absolutely. No, so I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean it as fear is the only driver. That would be a really horrible worldview. <laughs> Oh, that was fun. We could, uh, we could have lots of fun with that. But okay, okay. Uh, so you're not doing that. No, no, I wasn't. I didn't. I, I, sorry, I, meant, I, I, I did mean to say negative, the negative emotions in life. I wasn't even going to touch on the positive emotions in life because I, I really didn't want to re- – I didn't want the audience to hate me because mm. I really I really do feel, as you just said, I think it comes down to reproduction as well. So I think, I think love is just an intelligent way of uh, – intelligent, inverted commas, uh, a frontal context way of dealing with mating. <laughs> I'm, mm. I'm such a romantic. I'm such a catch. We can discuss it. I'm happy to go there. I just, I'm more scared of going there. I'm actually quite mm. happy to talk about fear and anger and hatred. From a philosopher's point of view, does it even vaguely hold up that every political thing we're seeing right now, everything going on in the world really comes down to apes being scared of other apes? It's a difficult one because it's an unfalsifiable hypothesis. We could say fear drives all of our negative behaviour, but you could say, well, there's fear and also there's justified anger. You know, if I read about war atrocities, and even though I am very safe from war atrocities in Australia, I may still get angry about it think, oh, if I could go back in time and punch that Nazi. So is that because I'm afraid of the Nazi or or is it because I've identified the Nazi as the kind of thing that I don't want in the world? You could justify it either way, but I think you could can certainly construct a narrative where fear lies at the heart of most of our anger and lies at the heart of most of our negative emotions. You know, abusive spouses do it because they're afraid of being alone. Uh, racists are afraid that people who don't look like them will come and get them. Mm. Uh, sexists don't understand the opposite sex and are afraid of them. Yeah. Or, or, or frightened. Well, I mean, in that case, let's go there. I mean, that's I think that's a really good one. Uh, talking about you know. Um, people frightened of other people in that case you're not frightened because they're going to hurt you some i mean sometimes it's it's like oh the the other is going to come and take all my stuff or they're going to wear funny hats or they're going to eat weird food or they're going to marry my daughter or whatever mate out my line or but it's also that fear of i won't get more of the pie so Mm. i think that humans aren't as adult as we like to think we are that that our children are more honest in their I don't want to share that porridge because I don't know if the kids eat porridge, I don't know anymore. I, I don't want to share the porridge because it's yeah, my porridge. Oh, like they like porridge? Excellent, good. Mm. Uh, I'm, st- I'm still down with the kids. Excellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to share my porridge because if you don't eat the porridge, you could die. I mean, you could, you could die. You could mm. not get enough sustenance and you could die. And that's a real fear. I, I mean, when you're young, maybe it is a real fear. I don't remember being that young, but it's maybe you are that scared. So to give up your porridge to your sibling or to your friend is really weird. You're like, but but 
why should I give it to them? I'll die. And when you become an adult, you, you would never think that you're the same as a three-year-old or four-year-old. But I think you kind of are. You go, well, no, no, I've got my job and I've got my Lexus and I've got my house and my swimming pool and my hoverboard and my Xbox One and blah, blah, blah. If I let those others come in, they're going to take it from me. And I, well, more to the point, I won't have it anymore because there won't be enough to go around the zero-sum game. So it's, fr- it's fear again, which leads to anger and yelling and marching with tiki, tiki um, flames on your stupid hat. Etc. Um, uh, yeah. that, that, that sounds plausible. Uh, going back to psychology and you know replication crisis, maybe because it's psychology, it's not true. But I did read about one study a while ago that got young kids at the you know, fighting over porridge kind of age and gave them goodies to distribute amongst their family to see what distribution they would favour. And the conclusion they came up with is that generally kids wanted to give themselves two shares and siblings or parents one share of whatever goodies were being handed out. Oh. So they would give if you were had a kid and we gave that kid a bowl of porridge, they'd want to give you about one third of the porridge and keep two thirds themselves. <laughs> okay. And what they thought was interesting about that is that's precisely the ratio of selfish genes that you have in common with them. You, know, you have fifty percent <laughs> genetic of your child, so as far as your child's genes are concerned, you're worth half as much as the child. Yes. Uh, your continued existence is exactly 50% of the value of the child's continued existence, so you should get exactly 50% of the porridge uh, <laughs> that the child would get. So maybe it all comes back to love or reproduction and mm. that the reason they don't want to share their porridge is you know, those foreign people, not so many genes in common with us. Yeah. Uh, we want to share the porridge just with the people we share a reproductive relationship with who share some of our genes, which is really short-sighted in a way because we all share the overwhelming majority of our genes with every single human on the planet. And yeah. the genes yeah. that dis- distinguish me from you and the genes that distinguish the two of us from a Somali person are uh, tiny and trivial in the greater scheme of things you know? exactly we, we share we share like 60 percent of our genetics with bananas for goodness sake mm. so you know it's like Get porridge I'm, with your banana <laughs> I, put, eat it. I, well, I, put, I, I normally put i normally put banana into my porridge so it's like i'm, I'm that monster you're 60 percent cannibal <laughs> actually much more than that but we won't go there uh not from this podcast today so yeah it's 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 an interesting idea i i i'm, I'm intrigued by that i don't have any children and um, I, I'm not married. I don't have any children. And I don't think I ever will. And that's a very dangerous thing to say on a podcast that's recorded forever. But I don't well, think... so I'm... for a dude, I think. Dude saying they don't want to have a kid, uh, don't get judged the way women... Oh, yes. Yes. Don't have a kid. Isn't that awful? That's, that's very... I know, it's awful. And I'm not saying... I, I don't, well, I've reached the point in my life now, I'd be very surprised if I had children. It would be quite surprising to me. Um, but I, I think it's because I don't know if I have the drive for it to have a child... And I'm not talking about sex. I'm just talking about reproduction. I don't need more of me. In fact, the idea is just awful. Mm. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for laughing. Uh, so I'm laughing because it's so obvious you're such a great guy that we should be cloning you <sighs> in swarms. Uh, and if the best you can do in these backward times is just have you reproduce with dozens of nubile women, then I think that's the best we can do with the limited technology, and we should do that, because clearly you are a wonderful genetic specimen. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. I, I, I can't see your face, and I'm not too sure what facial expression you have, and I'm very, very wary right now. <laughs> but nubile women listening to the podcast, Greg's <laughs> genes will go to waste unless you vote in and offer your ovaries 
It's a utilitarian, ladies, for goodness sakes. It's for the good of society. Oh, my goodness. Look at your boyfriend. Look at Greg. How do you maximize utility? Have your boyfriend's child or Greg's child? Do the maths, ladies. Right in. (laughs) Oh, you've broken me. I think that some people have stronger um, reproduction drives. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And uh, and therefore, you have a connection to that drive. And and once again, I'm self reporting, which is the lowest form of, of, of scientific knowledge, uh, in my opinion. I don't really care about if, where someone comes from. I really don't. I know I'm saying like, oh, I'm so global, blah, whatever. I've never had this feeling of I'm from this tribe or I'm from that tribe. I, I've never kind of understood it. I'm very lucky that way, I think, but it makes me a little bit blind to it. I'm blind to color. I'm not saying that. That sounds such a wanky thing to say. But when people get really angry, they go, I'm Irish. And you're like, are you? But you're Australian. I'm like, no, I'm Irish. Go, what? When, when did your Irish family? Oh, my grandparents. My great. And you're like, oh, you, right. You're not Irish, really, are you? And they get really pissed off at you because that's their tribe. And I don't mean it in a negative way. I'm just trying to say, aren't you an Australian? Like, no, no, I'm, I'm definitely Irish. I'm definitely German. I'm definitely American. I'm definitely whatever you are. I, I find it really weird. You kind of go, aren't you just a person? Like, you look like me. You just sound like me with a funny accent. Like, you're just kind of similar to me. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard some people argue, particularly with oppressed groups, that it's a sort of a backfire effect of its own, that they identify as an oppressed group member because they've got stick for it their whole life. Mm. And so they're, mm. they're in some sort of okay. reacting against that. That If you've copped stick your whole life for being Irish, then you go, I'm proud to be Irish because many people have made you have tried to make you not proud to be Irish or mm. black or woman or whatever. But, yeah, mm. if you're mm. a member of a group, where you've never been picked on in particular for being part of that group, it seems really weird to say, I'm right-handed. Yes. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed the Harry Potter books. They were reasonably good. <laughs> and, and people say, well, obviously, Greg, you're a nominally heterosexual, uh, non-breeding, <laughs> non-breeding mm-hmm. white dude. You're totally privileged, and I accept that. Uh, therefore, you don't understand this. And, and maybe I don't. And maybe I'm to- maybe I'm – look, I, obviously I don't. Obviously I don't. I don't get this. But it does give me a unique perspective of the fact that I kind of get weirded out when, I, when people want to make these tribes. I'm like, I don't want to make tribes with other white people. I don't. Mm. I'm, I'm not like. Oh, quick! Hang out with white dudes. I don't yeah, care and white, that it's, it's a weird tribe in a sense because white people were murdering the hell out of each other in oh, Europe yeah. for centuries. Yes. I mean, the idea of a unified white tribe is deeply weird. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't uh, exist. The English were kicking the crap out of the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh, and and then there's the Europeans. And <laughs> goodness me! I, mean, um, I suppose back in the day when you know. An Englishman might kill a Frenchman just for being French and vice versa. This sort of stuff meant more. And it could be a sort of a tribal signaling thing that if you're English, you want all the other English people to be totally fired up about being English. Because otherwise a French person might stab you and the other English should be like, nah, who cares? Yeah. yeah, Uh, If you can count on every other English person being on your side in a bar fight against the French person, then you you want everyone else to be G'd up about that, of so that tribal identity. So yeah, so it's literally tribal. So I see what you're saying. I'm lucky enough to live in, the, in 2018 in an affluent society where I don't have to worry about being murdered every 15 seconds. Getting back to the tribes thing, mm. I think you know, there definitely are tribes based on real oppression and discrimination and tribes based on real self-interest. You know, if we were in a platoon in a war zone, hell yes, I'd want everyone in the platoon to be going, rah, rah, platoon. But people do it about weird things like... PlayStation 4 versus Xbox One, where clearly you are not at risk of getting beaten up on the streets on account of your console choice. But mm. we still form into tribes. And 
attribute yeah. qualities that people who have uh, who join our tribe or aren't. And uh, mm. so, uh, iPhone users versus Android users, or whatever yeah. madness it is this week. Yeah, it's it's pretty strange. It, it's I don't get it. I don't. But but I is it fear? I mean, mm. we trying to use fear as the all-purpose explanation here. Are the iPhone users afraid of Android leaving them in the dust? And is Android afraid of the convenience and glossiness of Apple's operating system? Hmm. You form a tribe for protection. So at the root of it, it's fear. It's the fear of being, of making the wrong choice, of buying the wrong phone, and uh, of being publicly humiliated. I mean, fear is not just murder or violence. It's also being publicly shamed. We're a social ape. We, we need to be reaffirmed by other social apes we love it our brains are built around it so if if i buy the wrong phone kevin if i if i go and buy a, a google pixel for god's sakes then you know and then the iphone users the android users will like go blog mm. and, and and so therefore i have to hang out with my pixel google pixel phone people it, it that might be an android phone too by the way i'm not too sure uh and but hang out with them because now i'm frightened that i'll get mocked Mm. Uh, well, okay, give me, I'll give an example from my life. Okay, six, years, yep. six, six years ago, I bought a, a, a Foster the Veloster. So Foster, I still own Foster. Foster the most beautiful car in the world. Foster and I go on great adventures. Veloster Turbo, he's a beautiful car. He was my quarter-life crisis car, basically. He was amazing. I love him to death. He's an amazing car. Mm-hmm. Always love him. Amazing stories I could talk about Foster forever. People have said to me, oh, that's a woman's car. Mm-hmm. That's a woman's car, Greg, as if that's an insult. But they, they meant it as an insult. Oh, you only see women doing their makeup in that car. It's too pretty. And he's very pretty. I'll give him that. Foster's a very pretty car. And, and so I do like to – I have had conversations with other Veloster owners who are big, burly, scary men like myself to go, we're all men, men manly men, manly, 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 manly men with Velosters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I don't want to be – considered not a manly man because of my choice of car which is insane because i honestly don't care but it's still something i did think about I went, oh wait is it a woman's car went, what's a woman's car what does that mean uh you know and, and also would it be bad if i drove around in the car for women uh, mm, i do find car culture deeply weird in a way that again to me they're just ways of getting from point a to point b uh, if i could just pick a car by a list of its technical specifications without not being blinded to the brand and the mark and how the thing looked, I'd be completely happy with that. That would suit me. But mm. you know, we have these tribal cultures, the Holden versus the Ford versus mm. the Mazda versus the Toyota. And you know, some racial things like uh, the American motorcycle versus the Japanese motorcycle mm-hmm. thing. And people, uh, they build their identity around these devices for getting from point A to point B. And I find that weird. Mm. But once again, it's I- lost a weirdo. <laughs> How dare you, sir? He's, but he's, but I ended it. He's very pretty. I don't care. I can just go and stroke my car. I don't care. I don't need you. I don't need, I don't need anyone. Oh, God. Uh, maybe tribalism is fear, is, is the base of tribalism is actually fear. And it's, it's a deep-rooted need to have protection from people who are, who are the other. Mm. Well, I think it's probably unfalsifiable, but I think you could tell a story where almost all of our negative behaviours and all of our positive ones, like hanging out with friends, are based on fear. Why do I enjoy hanging out with my friends after school and talking about Dungeons and Dragons or cars or whatever it is? Oh, because I'm afraid that if I'm alone, I'll get picked on or beaten up. Yeah, you can mm. tell that story. Mm. Uh, why do I vote for 
the Labour Party? Because I'm afraid of the 1%. Why do I vote for the Liberal Party? Because I'm afraid of the blue-collar unions. Why do I vote for the Greens? I'm afraid of global warming and climate change. Mm. Uh, you could tell that story. Why do I vote for One Nation? Because uh, I've got all sorts of deep-seated problems. <laughs> but among them is fear of foreigners. It was fear of Asians back when I was younger. Now it's fear of Middle Eastern people. Yes, and, yes. You know, 20 years' time, I'm sure Pauline Hanson will be drumming up fear about some completely other unrelated group. And, you know, we'll have a bunch of racist Muslims following her around going, I, yeah. I know she used to be racist against Muslims, but you know, yeah. now those Funken Fagen people are coming. Oh, we hate them. It's going to be young people. And you know it's going to be young people. She's going to get to like 80 and she'll, yeah. be, she'll be like, young people are the worst things. And so yeah, you get all these old imams going, yes, Allah says these young people are terrible. <laughs> we stand with Pauline. Oh, I, I, look, I, I laugh, but it's it, it could potentially happen. Goodness me. So, yeah, I, it's unfalsifiable. Fair enough. It's it's a way of thinking about it. Why I wanted to bring it up here also and have a chat to you about it for the listeners as well. It's it's a way of understanding. Maybe it's a story I'm telling myself, and, and that's fine. It, even if it's unfalsifiable, it's a story that I think works. And more to the point, it's a story that helps me in, become a better person, I think. Because when I see someone who disagrees with me, they don't vote for my party or they like something I don't like, like they're a game I don't like or they like food I don't like or they like a band I don't like or they, they disfoster the Volosta, mm. then I look at them and say, it's fear. The anger that they're showing me is based in fear. This is a scared person who is frightened. And the way you, you don't deal with a scared person by getting louder... <laughs> It doesn't help. It makes them more scared, and it makes you obviously the enemy. Isn't so, there centuries of military tradition saying the opposite? You know, when your privates are scared, you are get over that trench, private, and they do it. I think, I think the theory of that is you make them more scared of you than they are of the person who's pointing guns at them from the other end of the field. We're onto something here. We're onto something. You know, if the people who disagree with you politically are more afraid of you than whatever it is they're afraid of that makes them disagree with you, then they'll agree with you. And, and there is a big thing about, you know, if I became... You know, if someone gained the powers of Superman and then you went, okay, you sons of bitches, you're all going to do what I say or I'm going to torch Arkansas with my heat vision, then you're like, uh-oh, because you can't kill him. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like uh-oh, strongman tactics. I will kill everyone in Alaska if you don't all behave. Like, oh, and then people start behaving. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Ooh, I, I mean, you, know, you could maybe do it in ways that respect individual agency a bit more, like say, okay, everyone in the USA, you are going to vote in the next election. Otherwise, I'm going to fly around the country at the speed of light, kicking everyone who doesn't vote right in the <laughs> There you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> get out there and do the right thing. Do the right thing or get kicked in the groin. Yeah, that, that's fine. And you can't hurt me. I'm invulnerable and I, I can mm. be anywhere and everywhere and I have omnipotent power. And then we get back to God and <laughs> the old <laughs> ideas of God at this point. But anyway, let's not go there. If I look at people and I think they're frightened, I, my job isn't to yell at them. My job is to engage with them. Now, some people may say and have you know said what, to me... You know what, Greg? You know what? I think you're actually undercutting your own theory here because mm. you're trying to get us to feel sorry for them by telling mm. us they're just afraid. That's yes. why they're... And make us reach out to them and love them and assuage their fears. Yes. Uh, but if fear really is the driver, we should just get a gun and point at them and say, stop being bad people. <sighs> <laughs> I hate philosophers. <laughs> I think then that would lead into the second part, maybe a conversation for another day, talking about love and therefore slash mating 
being. So you either I'm either going to make you feel fear, or I'm going to try and mate with you, which might make you feel <laughs> which might make you feel fear, of course. <laughs> uh, yes, damn it, Kevin, I was going for a happy ending on this thing, but you're not letting me have it, are you? Or, or we could unite in fear of a new thing. We could go to the skinhead Nazis and say, "Look, I understand you're afraid of the brown people, but can't we get together and be more afraid of climate change together?" Mm. And Reach out to them and unite them against some third thing we both fear even more than each other. And now we're talking about Watchmen, of course. But, you know, the Mm. only way to save the world was to genetically engineer a giant space squid and teleport into New York. Oh, spoilers for Watchmen. Uh, Kids these days have probably watched the movie where they did something else. There was no squid in the movie. They did it so much better. And come at me, people listening. I don't care what you think. It was the move that that concept in the movie of using Dr. Manhattan, not creating a whole new thing, is such a better idea. To Mm. use his energy, a a, a nuclear weapon that has his energy signature, because you know he's super powerful. You've all met him. You've seen his big blue wang hanging around. It's a much better idea. I, I'm, oh, that movie was not a great movie. That ending, very clever. Much better mm. done. Reduction end. Oh, mm, mm. I'm sorry. Yes. But, no, I actually, I agree <laughs> with you that it would be better to reach out with love to the frightened people who have bad ideas. I just don't know if we can get there with a philosophy that says it's all based on fear. I, I, I love the conclusion. I just, I just don't know if that argument is the one I want to use to get there. Okay. Well, then we will have to discuss that at another time. We will have to sit down and nut out the world's problems once again, Kevin Lowe. I'm deeply fearful that if we do not, terrible things could happen. (laughs) And I love you. There you go. (laughs) You're just afraid of being alone. Well, oh my goodness. Oh, comes swinging in from the side with to destroy the love aspect with more fear. I'm I'm excited now. There you go. I'm all riled up and ready to go. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on and talking on the podcast. I always love having you on. Always a great pleasure, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, my brain is still whirling after that conversation. I love having Kevin on. I love just having those sort of conversations. What I like most about talking to Kevin is sometimes you think he's on your side and then he kicks you in the guts with a bit of thinking that makes you think even harder. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, this has been Wa Wonders Why, a companion podcast to Smart Enough to Better, and the only reason it exists is due to the patrons on Patreon who support the podcast. So if you like this sort of stuff, maybe you'll think to throw us a few dollars. You'll find the patron uh, links on the www.smartenough.org page. But you don't need to pay. It's all free. It'll always be free. So... Enjoy the episodes. Let us know what you think. Do you like these sort of podcasts? Are you into the philosophy kind of things? Would you like me to focus on something else on Wild Wonders Why? This is the good thing about Wild Wonders Why. I can focus on nearly anything I want. So let me know what you'd like me to talk about, who you'd like me to talk to, what you'd like this to be about. It's been a bit eclectic, which I've really enjoyed. So maybe just a bit more eclectic stuff. What's something eclectic you'd like me to talk about? I'm going to keep saying the word eclectic. Eclectic, eclectic, eclectic. It doesn't mean anything after a while. It's madness. Anyway, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll see you for the next podcast. Mm -hmm.